Hi, it's John here. I've been studying and writing about Canadian business for a few decades now. And if there are half a dozen expressions that would capture that span of time, I got to think hollowing out would be one of them. Sure, we've seen the rise of some great Canadian companies. I'm thinking of Lululemon, Shopify, Cirque du Soleil over the decades. But we've also seen some other great names, Alcan, Inco, Nortel, slide away because they didn't have global scale. We've seen this in fairly blunt terms in the pandemic too. When you think of the shortages of the last year, whether it's PPE or foodstuffs or even toilet paper, it was often a function of global supply chains built for scale, built for efficiency, but not built for the kind of resilience that we need in more disruptive times like we've seen in a pandemic. We don't have enough global champions rooted here in Canada. And as we move past this pandemic, we're going to need to rethink our approaches to what used to be called industrial strategy for a post-industrial age when we're going to need a lot more Canadian champions in a lot more of these emerging sectors that are going to shape our lives in the decades to come. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. For all our supply chain challenges, one of the sectors set to emerge as a post-pandemic winner is Canada's talent-rich biotech industry. Canada has had a world-leading reputation in biotech for almost a century. It goes back to that famous discovery that we all studied in school of insulin at the University of Toronto lab in 1922. And just last year, a Vancouver startup, Abcellera Biologics, developed what is now the leading antibody treatment for COVID-19. COVID crystallized the vital importance of Canadian biotech, an industry that has the potential to develop the tools, treatments, and vaccines to make the next time more manageable and less deadly. By early 2021, Canada's 10 largest biotech companies, and Abcellera is tops among them, had a combined market cap approaching $30 billion. The origin of Abcellera, just like Banting and Best's treatment for diabetes, can be traced to a university lab, in Abcellera's case, at the University of British Columbia. Back then, in 2012, there were only six employees, one of whom is my guest today, Abcellera's founder and CEO, Dr. Carl Hansen. Carl, welcome to Disruptors. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Carl, you've been researching and working in the biotech sector for almost two decades, but I wonder if you could step back and describe, with that benefit of hindsight, the state of the industry right now. You know, it's something I think about a lot, in fact. And if you're outside of this space, you may not appreciate, you know, what a tremendous trajectory the industry is on right now. You know, one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, I started in this field originally in engineering and then as a grad student in Caltech, and it was my second year at Caltech that, to big fanfare, they announced the first draft of the human genome. So that was in 2002, uh, about 20 years ago. That's a blink of the eye in the course of technology development. And since that time, project that took about $3 billion in 10 years to do, technology has moved so that we could do that hundreds of times in a week in a single lab. So the underlying foundational technologies for searching, for understanding biological systems 
have only just come of age. And what we're seeing is a watershed moment across the entire industry. You're seeing that in a big influx of capital and innovation that is now finally reaching patients with new therapies. I believe that we are only at the very beginning of this. If you ask yourself, how much do we understand about biological systems? It is very, very little. And I really think over the next, you know, 30, 40 years, you're going to see tremendous advances in our ability to understand and ultimately to treat patients. It's remarkable the way you frame it, that uh, it took us the span of human history until 2002 to map the human genome. And then in just 20 years, we figured out how to do that in almost the, uh, the snap of a finger. And what are we going to be able to do in the next 20 years? Absolutely. If, if you made the analogy to the semiconductor industry, uh, this would be like the 1950s. Like we have the first transistors and people are getting excited about removing vacuum tubes. No one is yet understanding that we're going to have supercomputers in our pockets. And biotechnology, I think, is on that trajectory. I'm not aware of any field or any discipline where the rate of data acquisition has gone up nearly as quickly as, as it has in biotechnology over the last 10 years. Literally a factor of a million in the course of a decade, which is unprecedented. What have the last 16 months taught you? Many things. I mean, the last 16 months, obviously, you know, the whole world got taught a few lessons about the importance of having a robust sector and what investments in technology can do when things hang in the balance. For us, uh, we had spent the last nearly decade in developing technologies to better search and analyze and explore natural immune systems to find antibodies, which are these naturally occurring molecules that our immune systems make, and then use those either to treat or prevent disease. So we had been doing that with a heavy emphasis on technology, trying to solve the hardest problems in drug development. And during the pandemic, we had the opportunity to step into the breach and apply that technology to, in record time, find a therapeutic antibody to help treat patients. For me, what that really underscored was that what we had been pursuing for 10 years, you know, this concept of heavy investments in technology, this concept of collaboration with other groups was the winning formula in what was probably the most competitive antibody discovery effort that's ever happened and an opportunity to prove the technology, to prove the team, and really make Epsilera a household name across biotech. I mean, it's remarkable what you, but so many other biotech companies have done in these, uh, these 16 months, and we're still in the midst of it. What surprised you most about your own abilities to innovate over those, uh, over those 16 months? Well, I'm not sure that we were surprised. I mean, we had been working on this problem for a long time. In fact, you know, two years before the pandemic occurred, we had even had a program that was funded, you know, with an agency in the U.S., uh, the Department of Defense, that was specifically uh, trying to solve this problem of rapid pandemic response. So, you know, we had done the work. We knew we were ready. We believed that we would be able to come up with solutions faster than anyone else in the world. Maybe what surprised me was the massive impact that that could have in such a short time. You know, it normally takes you 10 years. We, we work in an industry where it takes a decade to go from an idea through to an approved drug. In the course of the pandemic, we were able to solve the front end of that very quickly and then collaborate with uh, Eli Lilly in the United States and also collaborate with government agencies, including the NIH, and of course, working closely with regulatory agencies. And we're able to shrink that timeline, uh, you know, usually a decade before an approval, down to less than a year before this antibody had been through clinical trials, had been granted emergency use authorization. And as of today, has been used in nearly half a million people in the U.S. alone. And we believe it saved, you know, tens of thousands of lives and tens of thousands of hospitalizations. 
So, you know, as a company, when you're pursuing that mission all the time of finding drugs for patients and you expect it to be out in the future, to have that, that whole experience compressed into 12 months is a tremendously satisfying and rewarding experience and one that really brought the team together and I think made everyone really, truly believe in what we're doing in the long run, which is trying to do this again for other therapies. Now, maybe I should stop you there and ask you to explain for our listeners who might not be biotech experts, what Abcelera does and how that differentiates from many of the other products, including vaccines that uh, they may be familiar with. So first, Abcelera is a technology company. I often make a point of saying that we're a technology company and not a biotech company. I make that distinction because most biotechnology companies are focused on bringing their own therapeutic products through the clinic and ultimately to approval. We set up the company very differently. Uh, We set up the company to assemble best-in-class technologies, modern technologies, from genomics, from computation, from cell biology, from engineering, to make it much easier and faster at the front end of discovery, to go in from that scientific insight or that concept of what a therapeutic should be to the actual molecule that can be moved forward. Now, the way we do that is that we look through natural antibody responses, either in humans, as in the case of COVID-19, or in animals, and we sift through millions of different antibodies to find those that have those perfect qualities that make them able to neutralize the virus and also easy to manufacture and distribute as a drug out in the world. So that's what we've been focused on. And the product that we were able to help develop uh, during the pandemic is uh, an antibody therapy that uh, essentially can be given to patients and acts like synthetic immunity to stop the virus in its tracks, to keep people from getting sick, to keep them out of hospital, and to keep them from dying. Carl, you talked a bit about Abcelera's pace of innovation through the uh, pandemic, referencing largely U.S. institutions and partners. But I wonder if you can give us a sense of Canada's preparedness. We've seen a lot of restructuring of sectors, including biotech, over the decades. In some ways, made us more competitive. In other ways, made us perhaps less resilient. What's your kind of take on Canada's uh, position in terms of uh, especially the biotech sector and our global positioning right now? I don't think that anyone would try to make the case that Canada was well prepared for the COVID-19 pandemic. And perhaps that's you know, not, not, not a terrible indictment because that was true broadly across the world. You know, one of the things I would say is that if you look at the solutions that have been brought forward, the vaccine developments, the therapeutics, the contact tracing, these have come from countries that have a very well-developed technology and biotechnology sector. And in many cases, you know, those solutions, particularly things like the Moderna vaccine, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, you can map their origins back to investments that were made in the U.S. by the government focused on finding new therapeutic modalities to treat cancer or even to treat vaccines. So Canada, unfortunately, you know, over the past uh, several years, I think I'd characterize as a nascent uh, biotech sector. What has happened you know, over the past few months uh, or year, I think has shown everyone the importance, not just for the economy, not just for creating jobs, not just for helping to do your part as a country in innovation, but also for national security and having your own supply chain and your own capabilities to take care of your citizens. We could improve substantially some of the policies that we have to make Canada more competitive for attracting investment for for growing businesses. Also, to make it more business friendly uh, for sectors, particularly like biotech, which are heavily regulated. 
And in many cases, Canada is actually a harder place to do business than in the U.S. And so with the stroke of a pen, with some good policy decisions, I think we can make a very big impact that would help to get more investment, bring more people into Canada doing biotech. And probably most importantly, to make sure the companies that we have, like Abcelera, can scale quickly and are incentivized to make sure that Canada remains their home base. Carl, I want to go back to a point you just made about Canada being a harder country to do business in. One of the challenges for companies like yours is getting on the so-called lists of, uh, of, of treatments. Not that that's easy in the U.S., but what are some of the obstacles you face in terms of getting that kind of access in your home country versus uh, the country next door? There's been a lot said about that, and I probably you know, don't want to go too far uh, into all of the nuances of getting drugs approved uh, and sold in Canada. Uh, in large part because that's normally not uh, an area that our company plays in and not one that we've, we've paid a, you know, a lot of attention to until recently. So Abcelera typically would work on the front end of discovery. And then we would work with partners like Eli Lilly uh, to go through clinical development and ultimately through to commercial. One of the things that, that I would highlight is that Canada has very little activity in terms of clinical trials. There are some differences between the requirements for starting clinical trials in Canada and the U.S. And those differences, you know, at least in the COVID-19 situation, have made it difficult to launch clinical trials in Canada. Uh, so there is, I think, a very strong case to be made to harmonize our way of evaluating drugs and launching clinical development with the U.S. since they are you know, a, a much bigger player in this space. And the proximity to Canada would make it a natural extension for those efforts. It's worth highlighting what an opportunity that might be for Canada. So first of all, developing a drug all the way through from an idea to approval is something that requires investments in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So those investments go to the hospitals, the doctors, the data collection. And by making ourselves an attractive place to do clinical development, we would create a new industry that is new dollars coming into Canada and building up that research capability, which is so critical for the biotech sector. The other thing to point out is that there are diseases out there, unfortunately, for which we don't have good drugs. And if you're in Canada, it's unlikely you're going to be able to access those trials to get the early access to treatments that could really make a difference. To the extent we can make Canada a destination for clinical development, it would unlock value or drive investment into the country. It would bolster the environment and the expertise for clinical development in biotech. And it would be a win for patients who would be able to access those therapies more quickly. I wonder, Carl, if you can shed a bit more light on your own strategic thinking for Abcelera. You've made a strategic decision to partner with leading drug makers. You've mentioned Eli Lilly and not be the drug maker itself. Maybe shed a bit of light on your thinking there and how you see things going forward. We started the company back in 2012 and started it based on investments in technology development that I had been working on for about a decade at UBC and, and almost 20 years in my career. When we launched the company, it was really on, on two main insights into the industry. Uh, and the first was that because the industry had been so focused on developing therapeutics, very little attention had been spent on refreshing and updating and improving the technologies that are the foundation for those early discoveries that lead to therapeutics. And when we really started to dig into that, we realized that most of drug development is still being done on technologies that were invented in the 70s and the 80s. And since that time, the entire world has changed. We have 
artificial intelligence, we have modern molecular biology, we have genetic engineering, and that has laid the opportunity or created the opportunity to reinvent that process. Can I just stop you there for a second? I mean, that, that's extraordinary that you're working on tech platforms essentially from the, the 1970s, given the billions or over the span of time, trillions of dollars that go into the industry. How, why, why was it so slow to evolve? Of course, why questions are always difficult. There's lots of competing reasons. Um, <laughs> the way I, I believe it has happened is, you know, in the early days, there were these technologies that were sufficient to solve the problems of the day, particularly in antibodies. You know, 30 years ago, this was not even a therapeutic type. And so people were skeptical that it would work. The early pioneers in that space had to solve a lot of problems and they worked with the technologies of the day. Once they did and it worked, they started to build infrastructure. They started to build processes and teams and ways of working that pushed that technology ever further. And that represented an ingrained way of doing the process and also a big sunk cost. Now, those companies... Their business is to create drugs and bring them to the clinic. Their business is not to do technology development. And so at any point in time, if you looked at the current state of the technology, you would say, well, yes, maybe we could do it better, but we don't have the teams and expertise. And it would take a really long time to replace everything that we've done. And so there's never a strong incentive to do it. Whereas uh, a new company, a startup company, always has this advantage in any industry. You do not have any sunk costs. You have a, a white page. And if you're looking ahead, creating that vision for what a modern version of this would look like, you have the opportunity to build that right at the frontier of what's possible. So that is the advantage of new companies all the time. It's probably the reason that uh, you often see small companies in the tech space and the biotech space that reinvent processes that, you know, for, for many reasons should be done by the big companies. They have the people, they have the expertise, they have the capital. We set out to do that and built the company and the entire business strategy on this philosophy that long-term investments in technology will fundamentally move the needle in how we develop drugs. They'll open up new opportunities, they'll make it faster, they'll make it cheaper. And when, when we decided to do that, we made another decision that was quite orthogonal to what everyone thought was, was good business practice. We decided not to become a drug company. And instead, we were going to build the platform, or as we like to call it, the operating system, and allow the entire industry to access that through partnerships. So we, we've worked now on well over 100 programs or therapeutic development programs. We've worked with some of the biggest, most enabled companies in the industry, right down to small startups. And the way in which we operate is, you know, they have a problem, they come to us, we work collaboratively, we bring their problem in-house, we apply our technology, and we send them back the data and the sequence or the instructions for making the molecules that can then become drugs. And when those actually become drugs, we participate in the success by having a royalty on the final sales. Great to hear you speak that way, Carl. We, we don't always hear that kind of entrepreneurial chutzpah from scientists. Uh, you did a PhD in applied physics and, and biotech, as you mentioned, from Caltech uh, before accepting a teaching position at UBC in 2005. I think you're still an adjunct professor at UBC. And curious how you marry those, uh, those two skills of science and uh, entrepreneurship and whether they're complementary or, or, or competing? That's a good question. I've been a scientist for many years, but I, I think I would more characterize what I have done as technology development. So I, I started my life in physics and engineering, realized after undergrad that I wanted to get myself into biotech and then began working back in 2000 on developing technologies for biomedical research. 
one of the things that I learned very early in that path was that it is extremely powerful to have a healthy irreverence for credentialed expertise. So you must be willing to step outside of your comfort zone to attack problems wherever they, they take you and be willing to be the novice and understand that you're going to learn quickly. That's an idea that I took back to UBC. And we had grad students that had trained, let's say, in biology who were doing programming. We had programmers that were doing biology experiments. So when it got time to launch the company, the idea that we could then step into something we hadn't done before, business or you know, business development or HR or all these other things, that was not intimidating. If you've been a physicist that transitioned into genomics, making the transition into finance or something else is just another thing that you need to learn. Um, so I, I actually think that in many ways, that was good training for entrepreneurship. The other thing I'll say about entrepreneurship is what it really is about is about being able to see the world with fresh eyes and to try to find the opportunities that everyone has missed for some reason. There's a lot of uh, work at the universities and locally in trying to somehow make a formula for creating companies and even to define what entrepreneurship is. In my view, no such thing exists. It's really just about independent thinking and then being willing to commit to the path even when it's hard because the hard things are the ones that are ultimately going to be of value. Now, that, that is something that I've been trying to communicate back to would-be entrepreneurs at UBC, that you can't create a company by consensus. You've got to actually have an idea. It starts with individual thought and then bringing the right people around the table to make that uh, a reality. You can't create a company by consensus. Those are words we can uh, come back to. We're going to take a quick break, but coming up, more of our conversation with Dr. Carl Hansen of Abcelera on the future of biotech in Canada. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. Key to the success of any entrepreneur is a keen sense of creativity. And in case you missed it, Disruptors recently dropped a special two-part series on the subject with guests from iconic Canadian brands like Lululemon and Shopify. Plus, Richard Florida, the urban studies guru behind the book, The Rise of the Creative Class. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Carl Hansen, the founder and CEO of Abcelera Biologics. I'm still intrigued with the idea of the newcomer advantage and what newer firms can do that incumbents may not be uh, positioned to. And often we see recapitalizations of sectors that, that enable that. And in some ways, I wonder if we're seeing that in biotech, if not a recapitalization, certainly a lot of new capital coming in that should be allowing a lot of amplification as well as disruption. What do you think all that is going to lead to in terms of what the biotech sector can do, especially from a Canadian perspective in the 2020s? Well, obviously, the influx of capital, which is happening south of the border and also in Canada, is a huge tailwind for biotech. This is a sector that is you know, very difficult to succeed in. I mentioned it before, but the typical timeline from initiating a program to having a drug approved is somewhere north of a decade. If you factor in a failure, probably a couple billion dollars on average per approved drug and certainly hundreds of millions for a program that is successful. So it's an industry that requires investment. It requires long-term investment and patient capital to ultimately create value, which only happens when we finally get therapeutics to patients. So all of that is, is very positive. Canada in particular, 
what I think we're seeing is a renaissance of new companies that have been built in a different way from what we had maybe a decade ago. So a decade ago, we had some high-flying companies, many of which were really focused on one or two drugs that they were moving forward. And when that works, it's of course, it's wonderful, but it's always fragile. There can always be something that comes in and replaces it. Based on what was, I think, a, a real decline in our sector here in Canada, the new companies that came up really got built at a time when there wasn't much capital, and they found ways to bootstrap up and to take a more diversified and platform approach to building their business. So the new companies that we're seeing are companies that are really focused on building the capabilities from which you can take multiple shots at, at doing drug, drug development. And then having those capabilities, being able to make deals with large pharma companies, with small pharma companies, to find revenue, to find validation, until they get to that critical mass when they can start to develop their own drugs. Curious what, uh, what advice you might have for other Canadian companies, uh, entrepreneurs, especially wanting to get noticed by global investors and attract that kind of especially smart capital to whatever it is they're doing. It's probably, uh, you know, several things that, that I could say about that. Um, maybe the first would be that this is not something that you just flip a switch and you're connected to these investors and you close these deals. These are relationships that need to be built over time. Uh, and so spending time in the big centers, taking the calls, networking, that's a critical part of it. The other advice that perhaps is targeted really towards Canadians is to be wary of being too conservative in your plans, not bold enough in the vision that you're, you're projecting. I've certainly noticed that if you're north of the 49th parallel, people are often criticizing you for being unrealistic in what you're trying to achieve. And the same plan, if you pitch it in San Francisco, people would ask you why you're wasting their time because it's not big enough. So if you are not you know, setting the bar high enough, if you're not going after that really big market, something that could be a global company, you are not going to attract the interest of the really best investors because they're not looking for incremental. They're looking for uh, game-changing ideas. That's uh, that's great advice. I, I've, I've heard from investors in Silicon Valley that whenever we hear a number from a, a Canadian entrepreneur, we usually add 20% because they're always low-balling it. It's just the Canadian way. I wonder if you might share some reflections on the state of universities in this country. You, you've spoken uh, very highly about UBC, which you've got a strong and long attachment to. And I'm wondering what we need to think about for the decades ahead in terms of the continued advancement of Canadian universities to be at the center of a thriving, globally relevant uh, biotech sector or sectors. Yeah, I've actually thought a lot about that. In my last two years as a professor at UBC, I had the unique perspective of being both an educator and an employer that was growing a company and had the opportunity to interview many, many employees. One of the things I would say, first of all, is that I don't think there's any requirement to revise the technical curriculum. If anything, we could take material out of the curriculum because most of what people need to know is the, the basis of science, and then they will learn what they need on the job. If anything, I, I think we need to better expose students to information about what is happening in the sector to make them versant in what are the new technologies and what does it take to succeed in this space. So they get excited about it so they can better understand the relevance of what they're doing. And perhaps third is you know, spend more time uh, emphasizing, if not developing, those professional skills that are going to make the difference between being hired or not. And that once you're in an organization, ultimately determine how impactful you're going to be and how high you can rise up in the organization. 
And so perhaps it's not, uh, you know, the most conventional view, but I think within the STEM fields, we're probably having overemphasis on the technical and not enough of an injection of the, the big picture and maybe even some of the liberal arts types of courses that help to round out a character and, you know, make someone a better, uh, a better employee and a better citizen. And, and one of the common critiques, as you know, also is that we don't commercialize uh, enough, especially IP, uh, whether it's coming out of universities or other sources. What should we be thinking about as a country, especially coming out of the pandemic and with all the IP that we're likely to see in fields like yours to ensure that more of it stays in Canada and becomes a stronger base for economic growth? Well, intellectual property is critical. I think the very best way to get these technologies into the world uh, is through the formation of companies. You know, getting more people interested in that space and providing the resources to help launch these companies, that, that's a hard thing to solve, but it's one that gets better and better as you have local successes. You know, perhaps a very practical thing that I think would make a huge difference, at least at UBC, and I suspect it's true across the country, is that the technology transfer offices that manage this intellectual property and need to make those decisions on protection early on are woefully underfunded. If you look at the total budgets for discretionary funding, it's a small fraction of what would be appropriate for a research organization of that size. I'm talking about low single digit percent, if, if even that high. So because of that, I'm sure we're losing a lot of value that even when it gets picked up later by a company, perhaps it wasn't filed as broadly as it could have been. That is something that's easily corrected and that if we do it, I believe is going to keep more value here in Canada, both in terms of the IP and also the companies that are launched on it. Tell us a bit about your own ambition for Abcelera. You started off with just six employees not so long ago, and earlier this year it was just over 200. I think you're planning to double that by year's end. That's pretty aggressive. You're building a new campus in Vancouver. I'm wondering what gives you so much confidence about where things are heading to bet on this growth. Today, I think we're, we're approaching 300 employees and we'll be well north of 450 by the end of the year. And the campus that's getting built is 380,000 square feet, I believe, you know, ballpark, with additional plans to expand into GMP manufacturing facilities. These are absolutely big plans, uh, unprecedented, an unprecedented footprint here in Vancouver. And of course, you know, the creation of hundreds of well-paid, highly skilled, cutting-edge technology jobs. One of the things that I am most excited about in the company is that emphasis on technology. Our long-term vision is to become the undisputed leader in technology for therapeutic antibody development in the world. I actually think we are knocking on the door of that right now if, if we're not already there. And to not just maintain, but to extend that advantage for decades to come. Abcelera is a bold strategy on long-term investments on technology that can help to open up new therapeutic areas, make things run faster. And what you're going to see from us is R&D, you're going to see technology in licensing and acquisition, and probably most importantly, building out the capacity, the people, the systems, the infrastructure that allow us to have as big an impact as possible on the entire industry. So I see that as a, a technologically advanced factory, the input of which is the problems of drug discovery and the output is innovation and the intellectual property that can lead to new therapies to treat patients. The biggest ambition is to show the world that when you take a long view on technology and you get the right people in place, you can build an organization that people are proud to be a part of and one that does 
one that has a real positive impact in the space and in particular in making it easier and faster to get therapies to patients and to do that in a way that you know reaches more people and is is more cost effective and i i do believe that 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 starts with getting the people right and the technology and the mission of the company and i feel like we're on we're on a great path what an incredible vision uh, incredible conversation carl thanks so much for being part of disruptors thanks so much john my guest today has been Dr. Carl Hansen, the founder and CEO of Upsellera Biologics. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. Stay tuned in the weeks ahead as we bring you some of our favorite episodes from the past year and update some of the amazing stories of Canadian resilience. Talk to you soon. Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.